chapter three of abraham lincoln a history volume seven this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. abraham lincoln a history volume seven by john hay and john george nicolay chapter three dupont before charleston the blockade of the atlantic coast was maintained with energy and efficiency many captures were made and its execution was at all times so strict that no vessel could enter the confederate harbors without imminent risk of capture or destruction a condition of things which is generally accepted as the standard of efficiency in a blockade fast sailing steamers however did often succeed in entering blockaded ports and in going out with cargoes of cotton and the profits upon each trip were so enormous that the traffic continued throughout the war the gains of success forming a sufficient insurance against probable losses the confederate government stoutly protested to foreign governments against the recognition of the blockade continually asserting that it was inefficient and putting forth extraordinary efforts to break it the most remarkable of these efforts was made by two confederate ironclads in the harbor of charleston and was supplemented later in the same day by a proclamation of the confederate commanders in that city and it is hard to say which demonstration was the more audacious the weather was most favorable to the sortie a thick haze covered the glassy sea and added to the obscurity of the wintry morning two of the strongest of the blockading vessels were absent for the moment taking in coal at port royal only one vessel of any strength the housatonic remained off the harbor with the ottawa and unadilla and seven other purchased vessels which were no better fitted than north river steamboats to cope with ironclads at four o'clock in the morning the confederate ram palmetto state followed by the chicora all at once loomed through the haze almost touching the mercedita which was instantly disabled by the first shot from the ram and an officer was too promptly sent on board the confederate who gave an irregular parole and returned to his vessel the keystone state was attacked by the chicora and received considerable injury finding his ship helpless her commander lowered his colors but the chicora still continuing to fire he thought better of it hoisted them again and with the assistance of the memphis resumed the fight by this time the housatonic had got under way and steering in as near as soundings would permit opened fire on the rams and soon drove them back to the protection of the forts the mercedita patched up her injuries and steamed without assistance for port royal whither the keystone state was also sent for repairs so that before ten o'clock in the morning the incident was closed and the blockade was re-established the rams had made a bold and on the whole not unsuccessful raid but the performance of general beauregard and commodore ingram commanding respectively the military and naval forces in south carolina was still more daring and their raid upon paper left entirely out of sight that of the palmetto state and the chicora on the still waters of the harbor 
these enthusiastic officers trumpeted to the world the following proclamation at about five o'clock this morning the confederate states naval force on this station attacked the united states blockading fleet off the harbor of the city of charleston and sunk dispersed or drove off and out of sight for the time the entire hostile fleet therefore we the undersigned commanders respectively of the confederate states naval and land forces in this quarter do hereby formally declare the blockade by the united states of the said city of charleston south carolina to be raised by a superior force of the confederate states from and after this thirty-first day of january a d eighteen sixty three this swelling manifesto was based not upon any possible facts but upon diligent reading of works of international law general beauregard knew that a blockade did not become ineffective through the momentary and accidental dispersion of the blockading fleet but only through the action of a superior hostile force and he made his proclamation to fit the law rather than the facts the charleston papers stated in addition to this official utterance that the french and spanish consuls at the invitation of general beauregard had gone out in a confederate steamer and that the british consul with the commander of the british war steamer petrel had sailed five miles beyond the usual anchorage of the blockaders and that no signs of the federal force were visible that the foreign consuls had held a meeting and were unanimously of the opinion that the blockade was legally raised there was a good deal of loose and exaggerated statement on both sides during the war but it may be questioned if anything else so false or so reckless as this proceeded from any source from the beginning to the end of hostilities no vessels were sunk none were set on fire seriously only the mercedita and the keystone state were injured and their injuries were soon repaired the engagement was so soon at an end that many of the vessels of the fleet knew nothing of it until all was over the housatonic was never beyond the usual line of blockade no attempt was made to run the blockade that day five officers of the highest character commanding vessels nearest to the action testified that no vessels came out from charleston to make the pretended inspection set forth in the confederate accounts and yet this statement founded only upon the fact that the rams went out and had a skirmish and were driven back was heralded to the world and accepted by every one who sympathized with the confederates and for a time cast a serious doubt upon the efficiency of the blockade by way of testing the ironclads of the monitor type admiral dupont in the latter part of january had sent the montauk to attack the confederate works at genesis point about fifteen miles south of savannah afterwards known as fort mcallister and the scene of several serious engagements and if possible to capture or destroy the nashville a swift blockade runner which failing to escape with a cargo of cotton had been withdrawn 
her cargo removed and the vessel fitted out as a privateer under the protection of fort mcallister she had lain in the ojiqui river for several months waiting for an opportunity to emerge warden whose gallantry and intelligence had already been shown in the combat with the merrimac attacked the fort on the twenty seventh of january and again on the first of february but inflicted no damage upon it which could not be readily repaired the fort poured volley after volley upon the montauk with very little effect had the fort been the only enemy in sight the montauk would have at once proceeded up the river but the stream was heavily obstructed and planted with a line of torpedoes on the twenty seventh of february warden observed the nashville with steam up and apparently in trouble and after a bold yet careful reconnaissance he discovered that she was aground about twelve hundred yards above the obstructions with a true sailor's intuition he saw that his prey was within his reach she had grounded at high water and could not get off before morning he therefore resolved at the earliest light to push into the area swept by mcallister's fire and destroy the privateer at his leisure this daring but sagacious plan was carried out at daylight the next morning deliberately placing himself under the guns of mcallister he opened fire upon the nashville across a low projection of swampy land at the point of which lay the line of obstructions the upper works of the privateer alone were in sight across the lowland but warden undisturbed by the tempest of shot and shell which rained on him from the fort speedily got the range of the nashville and dropped his eleven and fifteen inch shells with terrible precision upon the confederate vessel and in a few moments saw the flames rising from her above the swamp through the thick fog which now settled down over both combatants hiding them from each other's view warden continued his deadly fire his mathematics taking the place of eyesight all his available men stood by to repel boarders who were expected every moment through the fog but none came and when the mist disappeared in the morning sun the nashville was seen to be on fire from stem to stern her pivot gun burst a few minutes later her smoke-stack went by the board and at last with a loud detonation the magazine exploded scattering the blackened timbers over the river and swamp the furious and inaccurate fire of mcallister had done little or no damage to the montauk one of the most brilliant and scientific exploits of the navy during the war had been gained almost without cost three days later admiral dupont as a matter of experiment and practised ordered the passaic patapsco and the nahant to make a new attack upon fort mcallister which was energetically done the engagement was interesting as a matter of target practice but without substantial results on either side on account of the obstructions and the depth of water vessels could not approach nearer than twelve hundred yards and although this had not been too great a distance for the montauk to destroy the nashville it was entirely too far for anything afloat to destroy an earthwork like mcallister 
two of the guns of the fort were disabled the parapet and traverses were badly knocked about but no damage was done which could not be repaired in a few hours the vessels returned substantially unhurt to port royal harbour a formidable force of ironclads had been collected under the command of rear admiral dupont by the beginning of april eighteen sixty three the officers and crews had become sufficiently acquainted with their construction and disciplined in their workings they had been tested by the incidents we have described and by a large number of reconnaissances in the various rivers bays and inlets which formed the network of the sea islands the admiral now prepared under orders from washington to assault with his entire ironclad fleet fort sumter and the other defences of charleston and high hopes were entertained both in the fleet and at washington of the capture of the city of charleston although the officers of the navy had already conceived a prejudice against the monitor class of vessels which afterwards developed into vehement hostility and although life below the surface of the waves was almost intolerable in these iron chests it was with a feeling of hope and elation that this extensive attack was planned and begun when at noon on the seventh of april the great flotilla moved in the order of battle which sailors call line ahead under the lead of captain john rogers in the weehawken there was little doubt in the minds of the accomplished officers commanding the ironclads that they could silence the batteries on either side and pound fort sumter into brick dust before the sun should set there was great excitement also in the confederate camp for the past two months general beauregard had been in constant expectation of a serious attack on the eighth of february he telegraphed the governor of south carolina saying that an attack would soon be made by an overwhelming force and that not much assistance could be expected from the confederate government general lee wrote to jefferson davis in the same sense saying also that he expected an advance on the part of general hooker but adding the troops of this army are ready to move at a moment's warning and all i require is notice where they are wanted and twelve days later beauregard issued a stirring proclamation couched in the grandiloquent terms characteristic of him urging non-combatants to retire at once from charleston and savannah and ending with this clamorous appeal carolinians and georgians the hour is at hand to prove your devotion to your country's cause let all able-bodied men from the seaboard to the mountains rush to arms be not exacting in the choice of weapons pikes and scythes will do for exterminating your enemies spades and shovels for protecting your friends the governor the next day called out the militia saying the abolitionists are threatening to invade our soil with a formidable army and the most effective method of defending our firesides our wives and our children is to meet the ruthless invader at the threshold <laughs> 
general beauregard remained in this nervous state during the two months that intervened before the attack he was continually writing to richmond in regard to the overwhelming land forces of the enemy striving like some of the federal generals to put the government in the wrong in case of a defeat and to secure for himself all the credit in case of victory he claimed that hunter's force was forty thousand while his own was only twenty five thousand writing to mr memminger on the twenty eighth of march he said that he needed three more brigades of troops but he hoped if we are not successful while the country may deplore it will have no just cause to blush for our defeat his apprehensions reached their climax when the ironclads appeared off charleston harbor and he then issued orders to captain francis d lee to make all necessary arrangements for the destruction of the torpedo ram under his charge at a moment's warning he understated his own force and greatly overestimated that of his enemy his returns for the seventh of april showed an effective total of thirty two thousand two hundred and seventeen men his aggregate present and absent being forty three thousand four hundred and forty nine not counting three thousand negroes at work on the fortifications while hunter's returns show about twenty thousand present for duty with an aggregate present and absent of twenty seven thousand sixty the nine floating forts composing the flotilla embodied the best results of labor invention and discipline of which the navy was capable it was admiral dupont's intention keeping the batteries on sullivan's island to his right to move up the channel between fort moultrie and fort sumter and establish himself to the northwest of the latter work to reduce it by the fire of the monitors and thence to gather the fruits of victory at the wharves of charleston but the result was one of the most complete failures of the war in spite of the lavish expense the long preparation and the gallantry and obstinacy with which the attack was made the monitors met with a severe repulse and although few lives were lost the victory of the confederates was to them one of the most valuable and inspiriting which they ever gained the attack that was to have begun at noon on the seventh of april was as usual delayed by trivial accidents for over an hour and after the vessels got under way their imperfect steering qualities caused the line of battle to be continually disarranged and it was nearly three o'clock when the weehawken received the first furious volleys from moultrie and sumter and all the subsidiary batteries within range rogers replied with his usual energy and spirit in spite of the rain of iron from the forts he worked his guns as rapidly as possible firing twenty-six heavy shells from the weehawken which in turn was struck fifty-three times in forty minutes receiving considerable injuries but not becoming disabled he approached very near the obstructions which extended from fort sumter to fort moultrie and found the casks by which they were buoyed and marked so thickly dotting the waters and with an appearance so formidable that he thought best not to push his vessel further upon such certain perils and probable disaster as the weehawken turned a torpedo exploded under her but did no harm 
the other vessels as they came within range of the confederate batteries had much the same experience the passaic was struck thirty-five times the montauk received fourteen shots without a special injury the catskill approaching within six hundred yards of sumter met a heavy cross-fire receiving twenty missiles the nantucket was struck fifty-one times and the nahant thirty-six times the keokuk finding itself in danger of running foul of the nahant in the narrow channel and the rushing tide took a position a little in advance of the line and between the fire of moultrie and sumter she was struck ninety times nineteen shots piercing her about the water waterline after more than an hour of this frightful punishment she was withdrawn and anchored out of range of the enemy's fire and kept afloat during the night but at seven o'clock the next morning she rapidly filled and sank her crew and wounded having been removed just in time to save their lives admiral dupont was unable to bring his own flagship the new ironsides into the thick of the fight as he desired and endeavoured to do the vessel was almost unmanageable in the narrow channel and the swift current and had to be anchored twice to prevent grounding she came no nearer to fort sumter at any time than one thousand yards in the course of her movements she floated for an hour over a cylinder torpedo of the enemy containing two thousand pounds of powder at first to the delight but finally to the exasperation of the confederate engineer who tried in vain to explode it near five o'clock the admiral finding that it was too late to fight the battle before dark gave signal for his vessels to withdraw expecting to renew the attack the next morning but as the commanders of the ironclads reported one by one on board the flagship with their stories of injury to their vessels stories in which there was perhaps something of unintentional exaggeration natural to men who had been confined during the afternoon in such abnormal conditions under water exposed every instant to the danger of death by drowning by cannon shot by flying splinters and broken plates and bolts the admiral became convinced of the uselessness of any further attempt to force the passage of the forts and concluded to renounce his intention of renewing the attack he briefly announced this conclusion to the department and in a later and more detailed report of april fifteenth he described the fire to which his vessels were subjected and the injury resulting from it and gave it as his opinion that any attempt to pass through the obstructions would have entangled the vessels and held them under the most severe fire of heavy ordnance that had ever been delivered i had hoped he said that the endurance of the ironclads would have enabled them to have borne any weight of fire to which they might have been exposed but when i found that so large a portion of them were wholly or one-half disabled by less than an hour's engagement before attempting to remove overcome the obstructions or testing the power of the torpedoes i was convinced that persistence in the attack would only result in the loss of the greater portion of the ironclad fleet and in leaving many of them inside the harbour to fall into the hands of the enemy the latter contingency would have been a serious disaster and might have resulted in the breaking of the blockade 
on the same evening admiral dupont received a confidential letter from the secretary of the navy dated april two saying the exigencies of the public service are so pressing in the gulf that the department directs you to send all the ironclads that are in a fit condition to move after your present attack upon charleston directly to new orleans reserving to yourself only two this order was accompanied by an unofficial letter from mr fox saying that matters were at a standstill on the mississippi river and that the president had been with difficulty restrained from sending off hunter and all the ironclads directly to new orleans the opening of the mississippi being now the principal object of the government he says we must abandon all other operations on the coast where ironclads are necessary to a future time we cannot clear the mississippi river without the ironclads and as all the supplies come down the red river that stretch of the river must be in our possession this plan has been agreed upon after mature consideration and seems to be imperative while the mind of the admiral was under the influence of the failure of the attack and of these dispatches general hunter commanding the land forces made a proposition that the army and navy should join in an attack on the works on morris island which proposition the admiral declined answering a letter full of compliment and sympathy from general hunter the admiral said i feel very comfortable general for the reason that a merciful providence permitted me to have a failure instead of a disaster and if i had ever entertained for a moment any misgiving as to my course the dispatches just handed me would remove it the day before april eight finding the ships more damaged than he had suspected he had written to general hunter i am now satisfied that the place cannot be taken by a purely naval attack and i am admonished by the condition of the ironclads that a persistence in our efforts would end in disaster and might cause us to leave some of our ironclads in the hands of the enemy which would render it difficult for us to hold those parts of the coast which are now in our possession i have therefore determined to withdraw my vessels the failure of the naval attack on charleston caused a disappointment in the north in proportion to the high hopes which had been entertained of a brilliant success on the eleventh of april before the news had reached washington the secretary of the navy wrote to dupont that the president had suggested that in view of operations elsewhere and especially by the army of the potomac it would be best for the admiral to retain a strong force off charleston even if he should find it impossible to carry the place he therefore ordered him to continue to menace the rebels keeping them in apprehension of a renewed attack in order that they might be occupied and not come north or go west to the aid of those with whom our forces were expecting to be immediately engaged should you be successful added the secretary as we trust and believe you will be it is expected that general hunter will continue to keep the rebels employed and in constant apprehension so that they shall not leave the vicinity of charleston this detention of ironclad should it be necessary in consequence of a repulse can be but for a few days i trust your success will be such that the ironclads can be or will have been 
dispatch to the gulf when this reaches you this dispatch which counted so confidently upon his success was bitter reading to the admiral after his failure a day or two later he received a dispatch directly from the president dated the thirteenth of april hold your position inside the bar near charleston or if you shall have left it return to it and hold it till further orders do not allow the enemy to erect new batteries or defences on morris island if he has begun it drive him out i do not hear an order you to renew the general attack that is to depend on your own discretion or a further order and the next day conscious of a certain inconsistency between this order and that of april two the president issued a joint instruction to general hunter and admiral dupont directing him who received it first to communicate it instantly to the other executive mansion april fourteenth eighteen sixty three this is intended to clear up an apparent inconsistency between the recent order to continue operations before charleston and the former one to remove to another point in a certain contingency no censure upon you or either of you is intended we still hope that by cordial and judicious cooperation you can take the batteries on morris island and sullivan's island and fort sumter but whether you can or not we wish the demonstration kept up for a time for a collateral and very important object we wish the attempt to be a real one though not a desperate one if it affords any considerable chance of success but if prosecuted as a demonstration only this must not become public or the whole effect will be lost once again before charleston do not leave till further orders from here of course this is not intended to force you to leave unduly exposed hilton head or other near points in your charge yours truly a lincoln on receipt of these dispatches the mortification and resentment of admiral dupont were greatly increased he fancied entirely without reason that the president's orders were couched in a tone of censure and criticism and wrote on the sixteenth to the secretary of the navy requesting that the department would relieve him by appointing an officer who in its opinion is more able to execute that service in which i have had the misfortune to fail the capture of charleston he announced his intention to obey all orders with the utmost fidelity even when his judgment was entirely at variance with them such as the order to reoccupy the unsafe anchorage for the ironclads off morris island and an intimation that a renewal of the attack on charleston might be ordered which he added in my judgment would be attended with disastrous results involving the loss of this coast in the same tone of resentful subordination he said i shall spare no exertions in repairing as soon as possible the serious injury sustained by the monitors in the late attack and shall get them inside charleston bar with all dispatch in accordance with the order of the president i think it my duty however to state to the department that this will be attended with great risk 
to these vessels from the gales which prevail at this season and from the continuous fire of the enemy's batteries which they can neither silence nor prevent the erection of new ones in this opinion the admiral was supported by the leading officers of his fleet it was the general belief in the blockading squadron that the monitors could not ride securely at anchor within the bar the opinion however was erroneous as was afterwards frankly admitted by the same officers the bar was found to furnish a sufficient protection from the heavy seas to the vessels inside and the monitors rode safely at anchor off charleston inside the bar for nearly two years they were made safe by heavy moorings with boys attached and the dragging so confidently predicted by dupont never took place the monitor vessels did most important service at a critical time and their short history will render still more illustrious the name of their accomplished inventor but there existed against them among the higher officers of the navy an unconquerable repugnance this arose partly from the disagreeable conditions of existence in the monitors in the southern seas the temperature below decks when the hatches were closed became almost intolerable in the course of a few hours and the perils of battle were doubled by those of asphyxia to officers and men labouring in intense activity and excitement in the vitiated air the dangers which a trained soldier or sailor accustoms himself to accept with coolness in the wanted conditions of field or siege or on the open deck became much more exasperating to the nerves when to a man shut up in an iron room every inch of the wall was charged with possible death the officers in the turrets were constantly exposed to destruction from the flying of nuts within answering to the impact of projectiles without many a tired officer leaning for a moment's rest against the wall of his protecting dungeon was disabled by the shock of a shell outside that never touched him the slow movement of the vessels in action a fault which was rapidly and constantly aggravated by the extraordinary growth of seaweed and shellfish on their bottoms in the warm southern waters their incurable habit of shearing from one side to the other when not under way all induced the officers whose education and training had been obtained in swift sailing clippers on the deep seas to regard the monitors with feelings of disgust which rendered them perhaps unjust to their great and incontestable merits five of the officers of highest rank near charleston a month after the failure of the attack on sumter submitted an opinion to the navy department which condemned the monitors in the strongest language they regarded them as incapable of keeping the seas and of making long voyages though in a secure harbor and able to choose their time of exit it was admitted they could greatly damage and harass a blockading force the long time required to load point and fire the heavy guns which they placed at seven minutes was another objection the navy department however did not accept this report as conclusive against the monitors and they continued to render good service until the close of the war 
perhaps no more striking proof of the excellent qualities of the monitors and of their serious structural defects was ever given than in the splendid achievement of the weehawken on the seventeenth of june and her inglorious end the following winter all through the early part of the month of june rumors were continually reaching admiral dupont that the confederate ironclads at savannah were about to leave by way of the wilmington river for the purpose of raising the blockade of warsaw sound and the neighboring inlets the principal ironclad at that place and one of the most formidable war vessels ever constructed by the confederacy was the ram atlanta this was originally an english iron steamer called the fingal which after a successful career as a blockade runner had been taken by the confederate government rechristened the atlanta and altered into a man-of-war her deck had been cut down to within about two feet of the water this was surmounted by a casemate with inclined sides and flat roof enclosing a powerful battery of four brook rifles of six and seven inch calibre two of which could be fired either laterally or fore and aft her armour was four inches thick of double two-inch plates of english railroad iron the edges of the deck projected six feet from the side of the vessel the overhang being filled in and strengthened with a heavy mass of wood and iron these details were of course unknown to admiral dupont but knowledge of the great strength of the vessel and the, the high hopes entertained of her in the south had come to him and he therefore dispatched to warsaw sound to guard against her two of his best monitors the weehawken and the nahant under the command respectively of two of the most trustworthy and accomplished officers in the fleet captain john rogers and commander john downs as soon as the monitors appeared the officers of the atlanta joyfully accepted the gauge of battle thus held out to them and early on the morning of the seventeenth of june she came down the river accompanied by several steamers decorated with holiday flags and loaded with spectators who had thronged from the city to witness the easy defeat and probable destruction or capture of the yankee flotilla there may have been more of confidence and of ardor on board the atlanta than within the black turrets of the federal ironclads but there never were seen afloat or ashore more of coolness courage and trained scientific presence of mind than captain rogers brought to the important work before him at the first sight of his enemy he beat to quarters and cleared his ship for action then slipping their cables the weehawken and the nahant steamed outward for the northeast end of warsaw island the movement was interpreted on board the atlanta as one of retreat the federal commanders having finished their preparations turned and stood up the sound to meet their confident adversary the atlanta fired first at a distance of a mile and a half the shot which went over the stern of the weehawken struck the water near the nahant for twenty minutes the monitors advanced slowly and steadily and in perfect silence until rogers who was in the lead and whose plan had been thoroughly arranged in advance attained the point he had selected for beginning his attack three hundred yards from the confederate ram 
as coolly and deliberately as if he were engaged at target practice he opened fire with his fifteen-inch gun the result of his first shot on the atlanta was simply stupefying although it was fired at an angle of fifty degrees with the keel striking the sloping side of the vessel in the line of her ports it penetrated her armor ripped out the wooden backing covering the deck with splinters of iron and georgia pine and prostrated about forty men the second shot struck the edge of her projection starting some plates the third took off the roof of the pilot-house injuring both pilots and knocking senseless the man at the wheel one more shot came thundering ruin and doom breaking a port shutter and driving the crumbled fragments in through the port this was all the work of a few minutes the atlanta fired only one shell at long range before the weehawken opened the consternation of these appalling blows following in such rapid succession far more than the real injury received had rendered the officers and crew incapable of further fighting she hauled down her colors hoisting the white flag in token of surrender the weehawken had captured the greatest naval prize of the war with four shots in fifteen minutes and the gallant downs in the nahant had had no need or opportunity to assist the atlanta was found to be so little hurt that in a few hours she steamed without assistance to port royal there were only sixteen confederates wounded not a man was touched on board the weehawken yet this famous vessel which made such easy work of any enemy opposed to her perished at last by the faults of her own construction she lay at anchor on the sixth of december eighteen sixty three within charleston bar fast to one of the mooring buoys she had been heavily loaded with shells and the weight caused her to lie deeper than usual in the water the sea was rather heavy and a considerable amount of water slopped into the windless room unnoticed through her hawse holes as the sea became heavier the waves began washing over the bow and came over the high combing of the hatchway to keep the water out of the cabin the iron door between it and the windlass room was closed and as the seas increased while closing down the battle plate of the hatchway several seas went over almost filling the room the pumps were put to work and at first the executive officer had no apprehension of the loss of the vessel shortly after noon it was found that the weehawken was sinking the signal was made that assistance was required but it was too late five minutes afterwards the vessel heeled to starboard the bow settled and suddenly righting herself she went down the top of her smokestack alone remaining visible four officers and twenty men were drowned for some time after the seventh of april general beauregard was unable to realize the full extent of the repulse he had inflicted upon the national forces he remained in constant expectation of a renewal of the attack and busied himself in plans for offensive returns which never were carried out on the eleventh of april he issued orders for a general boarding assault from the boats in charleston harbor upon the federal fleet 
in his instructions to the officer charged with the work he says i feel convinced that with nerve and proper precaution on the part of your boat's crews and with the protection of a kind providence not one of the enemy's monsters so much boasted of by them would live to see the next morning's sun he was so sure of great results from this plan that he indiscreetly boasted of them in advance by telegraph to the south carolina senators at richmond i have advised he says a secret expedition which will shake abolitionism to its foundation if successful my hopes are strong but nothing came of it and in view of the continued inactivity of the national forces on the coast the confederate government feeling the absolute necessity of giving every possible support to lee in the east and pemberton in the west withdrew from beauregard early in may a part of his force this extorted from him loud outcry and clamor in which the representatives of south carolina at richmond joined mr seddon the confederate secretary of war upon whom devolved the hard task of fighting at the same time the federal armies and the confederate jealousies tried his best to satisfy the south carolinians of the unreasonableness of their remonstrances the enemy cannot have he said more than ten thousand or fifteen thousand troops at the utmost after all deductions for the troops sent back to north carolina and ordered to mississippi there would be left for the defense of charleston and savannah more than fifteen thousand of all arms surely with this force you can be in no serious danger considering the superiority of spirit and valor in your soldiers and the advantages of entrenchments from a force probably not equal certainly not superior of the yankee enemy this statement reserving the natural southern boast was as accurate as it was reasonable hunter had fifteen thousand seven hundred and forty five effectives as shown by his may returns while beauregard's effective force after the withdrawal of the troops mentioned still amounted to twenty thousand forty five mr seddon went on to say i could be scarcely justified in stating the causes that preclude succor from general lee's army and other points to general pemberton but you may rely upon it that only on the fullest consideration and under the gravest necessity is the draft made on charleston and persisted in despite the earnest remonstrance of gentlemen so highly esteemed as yourselves the campaign of gettysburg was at that moment in preparation in richmond and the capture of philadelphia and washington was the dream which occupied the minds of the confederate government on one hand while on the other the resistless march of grant's legions across mississippi was straining their utmost energies but no considerations of reason or policy had any effect to quiet the petulant complaints of general beauregard while demanding the impossible from his government he writes with singular self-deception to the south carolina senators all i ask is not to be cramped decried or unnecessarily driven into opposition to the government where a united front and the concentrated efforts of all are absolutely required to withstand the gigantic storm which threatens to engulf us at any moment i am well aware that like others i have my faults and my deficiencies but thank god selfishness and ambition form no part of my nature 
it was not the fault of general hunter that beauregard was left so completely at leisure from april to june on the very afternoon of the ironclad attack on fort sumter he had massed his troops on folly island ready to cross lighthouse inlet and attack the confederate positions on morris island the boats were ready the men under arms for crossing when they were recalled by the announcement of admiral dupont that he had resolved to retire on the twenty ninth of april hunter proposed to the admiral a general demonstration on the savannah river which dupont declined saying that nothing but a feint could be made and that that would be regarded as a repulse by the rebels as well as in the north hunter at last being satisfied that the rebels had already sent away from charleston and savannah all the troops not absolutely needed to garrison the defences therefore begged to be relieved from his orders to cooperate with the navy in which case he promised to place a column of ten thousand of the best drilled soldiers in the country at once in the heart of georgia nothing is truer he says than that this rebellion has left the southern states a mere hollow shell he promised with this column to penetrate into georgia produce a practical dissolution of the slave system there destroy all railroad communication along the eastern portion of the state and lay waste all stores which can possibly be used for the sustenance of the rebellion but even while the ardent veteran was thus begging for a dissolution of the partnership which bound him to the admiral the removal both of himself and dupont from command had already been determined upon at washington admiral foote had been designated to relieve dupont he dying on the twenty sixth of june admiral dahlgren was appointed in his place while general q a gillmore a brilliant and energetic young officer of engineers was on the third of june appointed to relieve general hunter in the command of the department of the south the president on the thirtieth of june wrote to general hunter i assure you and you may feel authorized in stating that the recent change of commanders in the department of the south was made for no reasons which convey any imputation upon your known energy efficiency and patriotism but for causes which seemed sufficient while they were in no degree incompatible with the respect and esteem in which i have always held you as a man and an officer the secretary of the navy at the same time sent an equally cordial and complimentary letter to admiral dupont commending the ceaseless vigilance which had ended in the destruction of the nashville and the timely measures to which were due the capture of the atlanta you may well regard this he says and we may with pleasure look upon it as a brilliant termination of a command gallantly commenced and conducted for nearly two years with industry energy and ability end of chapter three